0: In this episode of the Tech Tidbits podcast, I sit down for a conversation with Sheldon Fernandez, CEO of Darwin AI, an explainable AI company enabling enterprises to build AI they can trust. Sheldon and I speak about everything from his transition from a CTO to CEO role, his extensive educational background spanning computer engineering, theology, and philosophy, to the general challenges around funneling cutting edge AI research into commercially viable products. If you wish to learn more about the work done by the team at Darwin AI, feel free to check out their website or connect with Sheldon directly via LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple podcasts for more episodes on the ubiquity, applicability, and future implications of artificial intelligence and technology as a whole. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sheldon Fernandez. To start off, how did you end up at Darwin AI? Because it seems like you had quite an interesting journey over the course of the year. So do you want to provide us like a brief uh, highlight or highlights uh, of how you ended up here?
1: Yeah, so the story is, you know, it's it's a good story actually. So it's a good, it's appropriate you're beginning with, with that question. Um, so I founded a company called Infusion uh, when I started, uh, when I graduated from Waterloo. Um, Infusion was a uh, software enterprise consulting company. Uh, we grew up in New York City. Our first client was Lehman Brothers. So we often joke we outlived our first client. And uh, we grew that from the original team of six to 650. And we were acquired in 2017 by a much larger organization uh, called Avanade. They're coned by Microsoft and Accenture. I was the CTO of that organization for a good portion of my time there. And it was around 2016 uh, that I really noticed uh, machine learning and deep learning as a significant technological apparatus. Uh, I actually, you know, uh, have always been into artificial intelligence, particularly in the realm of computer chess. Uh, you know, when, when the very first uh, computer scientists tried to devise a uh, uh, kind of a standard, you know, mark for artificial intelligence, the game of chess was chosen uh, as a way to measure that. And so ever since I was young, I always looked at what is the progression in that area? Now, you may be a little bit young to remember this, but of course, in 1997, uh, Gary Kasparov, the world champion, lost to Deep Blue. It was a very sad moment for me because I was rooting for humanity. And um, And so, you know, the irony of that, of course, is that Kasparov was probably the stronger player, but kind of psyched himself out. But, you know, by the mid 2000s, the best chess, chess computer programs were far and away better than the best humans. But in 2016, DeepMind, the Google company, you know, did the same thing with AlphaGo. And the game of Go was not supposed to be conquered, according to most experts, until 2030 or 2050. So when that happened in 2016, I really thought, okay, how did they do this? And I really need to start paying attention to this technology, and so that's how I got into deep learning. And I started, you know, you know, researching it. I took Jeffrey Hinton's online course, and so I started speaking to the enterprise in 2016 and 2017 about deep learning. And essentially, what happened was a former colleague of mine named Arif Varani saw what I was doing and reached out on LinkedIn and said, you know you're, you're speaking about deep learning, go have a conversation with these academics at the university of Waterloo. Uh, They're doing some really innovative work in this area. And I know you're, you you know, you're still involved with Waterloo go have a conversation with them. So I did. And this team just blew me away with what they were working on. Uh, It was, you know, uh, kind of run by professor Alexander Wong. He's Canada's research chair in artificial intelligence. And uh, so, you know, I, I would read their papers. I would talk to Alex, professor Wong, but I was not. I was not ready to start running another enterprise. I just exited, you know, a seventeen-year journey. But every time I saw this team, I was just drawn to the material. I would read it when I didn't have to read it. I was researching it, and so I started, um, you know, advising them. I, you know, again, I was hesitant to jump into another venture. Uh, but in the fall of 2017, we entered the Creative Destruction Lab program. And just the energy around this team and artificial intelligence was just too good to pass up. So I left Avenod in 2018, in February of 2018, I joined Darwin as our CEO. Um, And then, you know, we, we started running the business. I often joke, this is, and I'll end here, uh, four months after starting Darwin AI, my wife got pregnant with our first child. So I often joke, I have two startups. I have an artificial intelligence startup called, Darwin AI, I have a biological intelligence startup called Max Fernandez,
0: and they are both magical and exhausting in equal measure. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I, uh, I, I can definitely imagine the challenges of trying to do both those things, but also the, you know, the, the value and the excitement behind that. Um, one of the questions I had based on that and looking into that a bit further is, you know, in your previous role, you were a CTO. So I assume very much so focused on developing the actual core technological capabilities. And so when you shifted from that role to CEO, what were some of the unexpected roadblocks or challenges that you encountered by um, that sort of shift in vision or uh, objectives even? Yeah, that's, that, that's a great question.
1: Um, so the, the, funny, the funny thing is when I, when I was first talking to Alex and the team, uh, we just sat around a conference room and, and Alex said, you know, Sheldon, you know, do you want to be our CTO? And I paused and I said, Alex, normally I would be a CTO, but I'm the least technical person in this room for once. And so I don't think I'm your CTO. And he said, well, what are you then? I'm like, I'm your CEO. I'm running this if you want. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. And I don't know what compelled me to do that other than by being a part of the executive team of this organization for as long as, long as I was for 16 years, almost by osmosis, I learned a lot of things about business by being a part of the discussions, but seeing how you, how you run and start an organization. Right. Um, so it just felt like I, like I had the right combination of experience to run a very technical organization, but there were, there were adjustments. And the biggest one I found was managing time as a CEO is so key because your time is precious. you you you're, you're fundraising. You're setting the, the strategic direction of the company. You are deciding on personnel. And so where you spend your time is almost as important as what you're doing with your time. And so what, whereas time management before as a CTO was very tactical, I have to deliver this project in this time frame, And so this is what I'm going to do. As the CEO, nobody's going to tell you not to do something, right? You, you have free reign, You want to take the day off and watch Breaking Bad for an entire day as I did after we closed our fundraising round? Sure, go do it. Uh, So the discipline that I had to bring to managing my time was unexpected. And it was a skill that I had to develop as a CEO and something I didn't necessarily have to do as a CTO. Because when I was a CTO, my CEO was telling me, this is what I expected of you, Sheldon. This is what you have to do. Nobody was telling me that as a CEO. So it was a bit of a change.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, especially because your your core background, although it spans a lot of different areas, you know, your undergrad was was in computer engineering. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that you were surrounded by so many more uh, technical people, even. Um, and so I guess that sort of leads us into this idea of like what Darwin AI actually is, and sort of your role there now, and what you're really trying to achieve uh, with this company and your team there. Yeah. So th- that's a, that's a great question. Um
1: so at darwin we focus on enabling ai at the edge that is trustworthy right and so what does that mean um so when we say artificial intelligence of course we generally these days mean machine learning and at darwin we focus on a specific specific manifestation of machine learning called deep learning which is based on neural networks that emulate your brain Um, the crux of it is that neural networks are fantastically powerful But one of the fundamental challenges with them, and you often hear this, is that they are black boxes to their designers. That is, even the people who design them don't necessarily understand why and how they reach their decisions. And so our team who have been working with deep learning for a decade now, so well before me or you would have even known what it is or understood it at a a real fundamental level, they saw this as a problem for themselves but also for companies that would try to adopt it. And so they developed through years of scholarship um, capabilities to illuminate this black box. And so at Darwin, we basically allow and surface the decision-making process so that A, data scientists and deep learning developers can make more robust neural networks uh, that are safer and more precise, but B, that non-technical people can understand what AI is doing and can validate it in in some important sense. And so we have now taken this technology to market in two ways. Uh, We have a platform that data scientists and developers can leverage to design neural networks in a fundamentally transparent manner. But we also have capabilities where, um, we can build uh, applications that uh, use explainable AI for very specific contexts for large companies like manufacturing, quality inspection, defect detection, uh, and so that's what we've been up to at the last for the last four years at Darwin. And you know, it's almost like we had this technology that the, that the world wasn't ready for, and now people are catching up.
0: Uh, so it's been quite exciting to be a part of this journey. For sure, I can imagine, and uh, even me, like I only learned about the term XAI recently. Um, And so it's interesting. I definitely want to dive into that. But I think one of the questions that I I had before then is, where did you guys get the name for Darwin AI? It's sort of an interesting name. And I have some presumptions of where it might come from, but I wanted to hear. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, good question. So our professors, their original
1: scholarship was in an area known as evolutionary synthesis, right? And the idea was just as an organism will evolve through subsequent generations and become faster and more efficient and better hunting food and so forth. They came up with a technique whereby if you gave a neural network and their engine a certain set of constraints through subsequent iterations, it would become better and faster, right? And so that evolutionary, let's say, element of their scholarship uh, just, you know, resulted in the name Darwin. Now the irony is that, you know, they abandoned that approach for a much better approach, which is our, which is our current technique known as generative synthesis, where we are using AI to generate fundamentally different neural networks that are explainable. So even though the technology became obsolete very fast at Darwin, the name stuck and that's kind of the story of how, of how it
0: came about. Yeah, it's an interesting name for sure. And, uh, it's it's cool to hear. Um, so with the the Gen Synth technology that you've spoken about, um, I've I've looked through your website. I've seen a couple of case studies, and um, I'm wondering if you can share some of those um, just to sort of ground the idea of how people are using this technology to date.
1: Yeah, so let me give you two. Um, I'll give you one in the autonomous vehicle uh, realm, and then I'll give you one that's actually in the in the kind of humanitarian food security realm. Uh, So in the early days of Darwin, we had an an autonomous vehicle client that ran into a very strange situation where their car was turning left with increasing statistical frequency when the color of the sky was a certain shade of purple. And I've told the story a few times, um, but it's a great one because you know that the color of the sky in general should not predicate the way you turn, but it was mystifying to them. Why is this happening? Um, And so, first of all, this raises a very important point in that machine learning systems are not giving you insight into the world. They're giving you insight into the data that they are trained on, right? So in this case, our explainability tech was leveraged to help them demystify this. And it turned out that they had trained the system for turning in the Nevada desert when the color of the sky was this shade of purple that's the only time they had trained it. So the car assumed that when the you know the, the color of the sky is the shade of purple, this is the way it should turn. And so this is what we call a nonsensical correlation, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a correlation that the AI has picked up on because of quirks in the data, but doesn't make sense in the real world. And so this is why explainability is so important because if you don't know how something works, you don't know when it'll fail. And if you don't know when it'll fail, there are all these egregious you know, p- possible problems in the system that can manifest themselves with potentially devastating consequences, right? Think of AI in an autonomous plane. Uh, think of AI making a decision about life and death in a military context. Um, so this is why explainability is so important. So that's one example. The other kind of less uh, dire example that I can give you is we're involved in a wonderful project actually in London, Ontario. So in your neck of the woods uh, by a group called the Spire food group. And this was a group of MBA students who in 2013 won the Halt prize, which is kind of the MBA prize for MBA students, or sorry, the, the Nobel prize for MBA students. And it's a million dollar prize given by the Clinton global foundation. And they basically came up with this, you know, wonderfully inventive idea to grow crickets, to address food security as a challenge for our planet. And their exhaustive analysis was that from an energy to protein ratio, crickets are a very efficient food and they can be used in protein bars and you can eat them raw as they do in some parts of the world, they're using pet foods. So they, you know, perfected the agricultural technology to do this over the past seven years, but then wanted to integrate AI as a part of this growth process in a a next generation plant, which is being built in London, Ontario. And so we are doing all the AI for this uh, particular system where explainability is key in identifying how you can make this AI so efficient uh, so that when you monitor things like cricket yield and the overall health of crickets and the moisture in the atmospheric environment and so forth, um, you know it, it's 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 really uh, key to kind of maximizing uh, you know the overall process. So that's a really exciting project that we announced uh, our
0: involvement in a few months ago and one we're very excited about. That's super interesting. I have heard the autonomous vehicle one but the cricket one is also super cool. It just sort of speaks to the range of applications um, and, and I think that one point based on that is that you know we think of autonomous vehicles and the ability of the, Uh, machine learning engineer to take the explainability and improve the model. But one thing I'm curious about is your thoughts on how the evolvement of XAI, explainable AI, impacts the adoption of AI from a consumer standpoint. That's a great question.
1: So many consumers will become more comfortable with AI, if they can understand the decision making process and it it aligns with their understanding of the subject right so let me give you an example um 18 20 months ago when covid you know first became a thing uh, our team very quickly using our technology developed a neural network called covidnet that diagnoses corona based on chest x-rays and ct scans and we very quickly released it in the public domain within two weeks of you know, uh, the world declaring this was a pandemic. Uh, number one, we, we, we were able to generate it so quickly because of our explainable technology. But when radiologists and clinicians were trying to understand how COVID manifests in the respiratory system, when we gave them the, 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 the application, the, the COVID net application, they basically just gave you a percentage you know, there's 98% this person has COVID, they were less accepting of that result than when we used explainable AI to surface, this is the area of the lungs that the system is looking at to diagnose corona, right? So in general, if we can understand as human beings, kind of the tectonic forces that are at play in letting the AI do what it does, we're finding people are more accepting of that Of that. You know, reasoning. Um, and of course, if you think about things like manufacturing, where, you know, people are, are threatened by AI, if instead of saying the AI is going to replace you, it's no, it's going to be a tool that you use to make a better decision, uh, to, to, you know, to, to figure out if a part is defective, to, to determine if this glass has a crack or if it's just dust, again, they'll be more accepting of it. And so that's why it is so key in the overall, you know, adoption of
0: AI from my perspective. That makes a lot of sense. And I can, you know, going back to your autonomous vehicle example, I can imagine like autonomous vehicles where, you know, if you're sitting in the the back seat, if there was like a screen that was showing you um, at a high level, the thought process that might make people a lot more comfortable if they know, okay, so the computer perceives this and that. Because oftentimes, um, as you mentioned, with the idea of a black box, it could be the case that. Um, the machine is picking up on something that gives that leads it to the correct prediction, but it's not picking up on the correct thing. So I think that there's a certain level of accountability that um, XII also brings, which is super interesting. Um, and then beyond that as well, I, I recently had a conversation where I've, I learned that um, a lot of applications nowadays, for instance, things like um, credit adjudication or risk adjudication and figuring out how to allocate that, um, mm. you're not allowed to use neural networks or, you know, these sort of deep learning techniques because of the idea that they're a black box and, you know, you can't just you can't say with certainty that there's no discrimination or that's not a factor into uh, coming into play. So um, do you see how far do you see XAI um, sort of expanding um, beyond just the scope of what Darwin AI does now? Because it seems like it could touch almost anything uh, related to AI.
1: Yeah, it really could. And so you raise a good point about deep learning not being used in certain domains, right? Because of the explainability requirement, um, you know, you, GDPR of course, you know, came up some in Europe, came up with some stringent requirements around transparency for AI. We have bill, you know, C11 here in Canada that's going through committee right now. Um, the, the question, so initially, whereas organizations were, skeptical of using deep learning because of the overhead in explaining it. Uh, The question now we're seeing is if they, if they believe that it offers a big competitive advantage uh, do they use it and, you know, saddle themselves with the responsibility of explaining things. Um, And we're finding the answer is yes. If you're one of the big top five banks in Canada and use and and you demonstrate using deep learning that this particular let's use an example fraud detection, uh, and this is one of the early problems that we worked on. If you have a system that's four to six percent better than your other best-in-class systems, uh, you can do you can take one of two approaches. You can say we're not going to use it because the regulatory requirements are too significant, but we're avoiding the hard problem, and our my competitor down the road may try to tackle this using deep learning and have an edge on me right so we're now seeing a bit of a shift where they are asking us and we've 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 seen this recently okay remember that you know explainable stuff we talked about a year ago we need to have that conversation again because we realize now that we're going to be using it and we need your technology um so you know i often say right the capitalistic system is ruthless the best product and best service wins and if you get that best product and best service using AI uh, and deep learning in particular, you can avoid it. But be sure your be sure to know your competitor likely
0: will not avoid it. And so you need to you need to figure out how to how to do it. That's definitely a sentiment that I've heard a lot um, from other guests who've mentioned that. Like the idea of it's not just um, you know should we do this? It's a question of is someone else doing this, and we need to do this just to keep up. Which is interesting to see how AI has evolved. Um, but because, you know, it wasn't, of course, even until recently, that wasn't the case. It was much more so based on the research. And that was the sort of next area I wanted to go into, which is this idea of, you know, the product life cycle related to artificial intelligence is must be particularly interesting at Darwin AI, because as you mentioned, your team has is very research focused. So what were some of the challenges for you as the CEO, like you said, guiding the business vision in sort of balancing the exploratory aspect mm. of research with the more concrete channeled focus of a business case and bringing yeah, the another thought. really great question, John. Um,
1: I remember one of our first board meetings, one of our, uh, board members, external board members paused and said, you know, Sheldon, there are hard problems and then there are valuable problems. And there's sometimes there, there's sometimes there's overlap sometimes but you need to know the difference, right? Researchers, academics, engineers, they love solving problems, right? This, I mean, I, I was a CTO myself. I, I, I wish some days I could just, you know, spin up code and, and program and do nothing but that for, for a day without any interaction with human beings. Um, however just because something can be solved doesn't mean that it's going to be valuable commercially, right? And so one of the journeys we've had at Darwin is channeling this incredibly talented team, which literally can do anything with artificial intelligence. We're very spoiled at Darwin because if there's if there's something that can be done, like the, the level of talent we have on this team is remarkable. Um, but, but working on problems that, you know, are, are valuable in a commercial context. And that's kind of how, if you look at our website now, it went from this theoretical platform and all this fancy paper and scholarship to, no, like we're going to solve, uh, you know, specific problems in manufacturing that have ROI around them. Um, and so, you know, doing that in a way that nevertheless still allows our academics to be creative and read papers, and, and, and do what comes naturally to scholars and uh, engineers, and that is innovate, is always the balance that we have to get right. Because you don't want to be too prescriptive, but at the same time, you can't just be you know, pie in the sky and doing things because they're cool. Um, and so that's the discipline that we've had to bring to Darwin. And I imagine what many organizations that are trying to innovate you know, struggle with is getting that balance right. Um, but you know, I think we're, I think we're getting there
0: for sure. Yeah. Like I had a I look through, um, your website and, uh, quite a large portion of it's just dedicated to purely, um, research and things of that nature. So, um, I mean, a lot of it, I feel like I was speaking to, um, a software engineer at, at Waymo, um, mm. who's been in machine learning for many years. And he, he said that, you know, like the research in machine learning has gotten so complicated that even he has trouble even understanding what is really going on in some of these papers sometimes. So, translating that into tangible business value seems like must be quite a challenge sometimes. But um, yeah. It's
1: interesting. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, you know, and uh, one of the big things we learned in the early days of Darwin, there is a chasm between a paper that's good enough for a conference and a product that a, a business person can use. right? Um, you know, it's huge. Um, and, and that's not to knock academics that, that their job is to push the boundaries of pure research and theory and so forth. Our job as, you know, entrepreneurs is to figure out, okay, how do we take these innovations and, you know, disrupt and, and transform and do things differently.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely understand that um, to a certain extent, it, because it seems like what you try and optimize for in a research paper is different than um, a business proposal. But it, it would seem like, you know, with both, you are trying to push the, push the boundary and create something new. So, um, like, what, I mean, for, for many people, I think even understanding what an AI research or machine learning research paper looks like is hard to imagine. So, um, like, what, what do you see as the biggest challenge in that sort of translation um, on your end specifically, uh, from machine learning research to product?
1: It's a good question. Like some papers are so deeply theoretical that there's no obvious business application, right? So I'm trying to give you an example. Um, you know, one of the papers we published, I want to say about a year ago, was around something called attention condensers. You can look it up. And it basically is a more effective way for neural networks to learn, right? And so you think, okay, um, that's great. What does that mean to a business, right? Well, it turns out that data collection is one of the biggest issues in a machine learning project getting off the ground in the enterprise. The first question we ask any business unit that we're going to engage is, do you have data? And if the answer is no, it's come talk to us in four months or nine months when you do, right? So data, getting data is a real challenge. Now, this technology that our team developed around attention condensers, and I'm going to do a poor job of giving you the nuance, is useful in in training a neural network with a lot less data, right? So think about what that means for an enterprise. Instead of now taking four months to get 150,000 images, you can take three weeks to get me 10,000 images. And I can produce a neural network that is very, very good. So it's, it's, it's bridging that gap that can be the challenge, right? Now, if I had said to my team, don't spend any time on attention condensers, we wouldn't have had this innovation that actually found its way into our commercial product. So you need, to, you need to appreciate as a business owner that look, if you give your team uh, latitude to do five ideas, you shouldn't expect that all five are gonna be home runs from a commercial perspective, but you should have the expectation that two or three of them might be, right? And so you need to give your team, as I mentioned, room to explore, but at the same time channel it so that it's producing results and measure the effectiveness of those results.
0: Yeah, and I think that your personal experience as a CTO sort of um, gives you a different perspective on that. It's not just about you know optimizing for revenue or this, it's about looking ahead in the long run and how you can harness that research. So I think you're well positioned to that extent. And um, I think you explained it well, like d- data storage, is not only challenging, but also it seems very expensive and a cost that many people don't think about, um, or at least that I didn't really think about when you think about like the like a huge company, a multinational. So something that reduces the amount that you need definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, but I do wanna switch gears a bit because you know I think that you bouncing between the CTO to CEO role um, is in some way reflective of your background because you know, you you have the engineering degree from Waterloo, but you've done so much more than just that. So, can we take a step back and actually explore some of the other um, educational background you have beyond just engineering as a whole? Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. Um, so, I graduated from Waterloo in computer engineering. I'm dating myself now in 2001, um, and while we were running Infusion. I always had this other side to my brain that needed expression, right? Uh, writing, the arts, um, things I didn't really feel that I got in my undergrad. And so as you may have seen, I did a master's degree in theology um, while we were running Infusion. Um, and I did it purely out of interest. I, I you know, I was raised in a conservative Catholic family uh, with two wonderful parents. Um, but as you grow as an adult, you have questions about you know, faith and your role in the world and your existence, and I really wanted to go deep into that into that subject matter again, purely out of interest, um, and I enjoyed that very much. Um, you know, it, it it was a rigorous thinking in a different way. It explored it. Sorry, exposed me to wonderful writers with you know real precision in their writing. Um, and the irony is that my thesis work uh, for my master's degree was on neuroscience and metaethics. And so I was basically asking the question, can the latest machinery of neuroscience tell us anything about our foundational morality, where our moral norms as human beings comes from? Um, You know, it was a very, you know, fun kind of thing to explore. Uh, And the irony is that, again, I had no intention of really, quote unquote, doing anything with this other than it was a pursuit of knowledge. But if you think about Darwin, uh, you know neural networks are, are, are based on the biology of the brain. And so the neuroscience was relevant to you know, some of our work. And of course, one of the key questions that we ask now as a community uh, in artificial intelligence is how you implement ethical AI. And so a lot of that deliberation uh, that I was able to bring to
0: those questions came from my theology degree. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, even as I was going through it, it it looked pretty cool. And I definitely wanted to expand on it because it seems to me like a lot of the sort of thought leaders in AI, what makes them stand out from just a pure machine learning engineer is that they bring the understanding from some other domain that they can apply AI towards. And I think that your background with the theology and how that touches on things like philosophy as well, is super interesting because it seems to be um, very intertwined with AI nowadays, with things like um, ethical AI. So, have you noticed that either like practically in Darwin AI, or just in the sort of way you frame uh, conversations around AI and the ethics around it? Given your extensive background and that other side as well, I think so. I, I, I think so. You know, artificial
1: intelligence is a tool, like like anything, right? It's a very powerful tool, but it's a tool. And to understand the areas that it can be effectively used, um, you can't just be the plumber that can implement the tool, right? Uh, you want to be somebody that has subject matter expertise or exposure to other domains, other parts of, of the world. What I, w- w- you know, I often get questions from young entrepreneurs, you know, how do I, how do I start a business, Right. And if they're very technical, I tell them find a business partner who is non-technical but really knows a given, you know, area of a uh, business or a vertical extremely well, and you know, figure out how AI can be a difference maker in that domain. Um, because then you're then you're not just a machine learning company; you're a company that's you know using machine learning to do X. Uh, a very good example you know one of the portfolio companies with one of our one of our uh, you know investor co-leads years ago i met her in san francisco and she was a machine learning researcher who if i remember correctly her master's degree was on detecting different shades of fish you know amphibious organisms and so forth and you know it was interesting but she's like okay like what do i do now and she happened on, you know, the shrimp uh, industry, which is a billion dollar industry. And, you know, the ability to apparently count shrimp really quickly and determine their overall nutrition and so forth, you know, even increasing, in, increasing efficiency marginally in that industry results in like moving billions of dollars in terms of savings, right? So she, she built a company around it. And I think they just did their Series B funding. They're doing extremely well. Now, if you think about it, if you were to ask a machine learning researcher today, could you design a deep learning network that you know detects amphibians and blah, 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 in, in this way with the right data, they'd say, Yeah, that's child's play. But her insight was connecting that use case, which was commercially really attractive to her own research in machine learning. And so that multidisciplinary approach, um, I think is, you know, very, very key in becoming uh, implementing something successfully with with
0: artificial intelligence. For sure, yeah, I think it ties back to the point you mentioned with the researchers just loving to explore the actual technology and maybe sort of forgetting about building out that business case um, alongside it. Uh, if it's not equally as exciting, and it's interesting to see because like like software engineers, um, their role nowadays like they pretty much control well like through social media and all of that. They pretty much have the capacity to control how we interact on an international scale. So it's um it's really interesting to see how that role has expanded. And do you see any value in people like that, just pure computer science um, and engineering students, having that background and understanding in things like um, human psychology in order to be able to create systems that are not just you know technically sound but also incentivize the right behaviors so this is something that we always think about with Facebook and their algorithms how they recommend content um, how do you see the bridge between that in terms of technical implementation but also usability on the human side and the user side
1: yeah uh good question um so number one you know you are seeing computer science programs computer engineering programs try to bring in, you know societal awareness of these issues right i think it was cornell who introduced an ethics course as mandatory for you know first-year computer scientists so number one i do think it's a very good move and you're seeing this at the likes of waterloo and u of t and western to introduce technical minds to non-technical subject matter because of the reach of technology, we need to understand it's no longer just some abstract computer code that you're writing. It has profound impact on our dialogue as human beings, the you know, treatment we get, the mortgages you don't get, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the other thing you're seeing in the enterprise and organizations is the, the, the systems also need to be designed with the input from people who are not engineers um you know uh policymakers psychologists psychiatrists um you know ethicists and so forth um but these are complex because they can tell you a little bit about behavior but they don't necessarily have the expertise to implement it right so this is a this is a really important issue that that is you know playing out as you can see in our in our dialogue um Big tech wields such tremendous influence now around the world, right? It controls your Twitter feed and the stories you see, the stories you don't see, the content you read. Um, You know, how do we choose uh, what we surface to people and to when, to children, to impressionable teenagers? These are all really important and very thorny questions that, you know, governments, bodies are trying to think through. And it's messy, like all things are messy with a technolog- a period of technological adolescence. Um, you know, you hope that we have the discipline to, you know, find our way out of it. But I think I think what's encouraging is you are seeing, you know, liberal democracies take these questions seriously. There's a huge debate in Canada right now around Bill C 11, and you know the expectations around transparency, uh, the right of the government to control content where's the line there it's a very tricky one uh you know i was on a call with uh, some mps they actually brought me in as you know somebody who works with artificial intelligence because one of the one of the one of the balances is if you place too much restriction on companies to meet certain requirements around transparency how are they going to compete with other countries that don't have those requirements uh, if you suddenly told me tomorrow, Sheldon, if you implement an AI system, this is the list of things that you have to do, and my competitor in Israel or China or Russia or Turkey doesn't have to do that. How can I be competitive globally? Right. So these are very complex questions that you know we need to think through and get right. So I, I don't know if I've given you a, a definitive answer, other than to say these are these these are complex, and uh, it requires input from a, a lot of people from varied backgrounds.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a super complicated topic. And, uh, you know, when we think of like governments regulating things, I, I learned that, um, you know, like the way the FDA came about was in like 1906, they essentially found out that these like disgusting conditions in the US meatpacking packing industry, um, or the, you know, the SEC came about after the worst stock market crash in US history in 1934. So I'm wondering, you know, are we just waiting for an ai disaster to happen before that that comes about um but the unique thing with ai is that or perhaps it's not entirely unique is that it just evolves so fast that it's it must be hard to you know for a government to even think about regulating so where do you see the responsibility of that line you know like um, a lot of the big tech companies established what they call this like partnership on ai um to like you know discuss best practices and ethics um do you see that as like sufficient, and even like within the scope of Darwin AI, is that something that you think about often? the The ethics of your solutions, and you know, is it your responsibility to self-regulate, or should that be pushed off elsewhere? So we are involved with Partnership AI. Um, it's
1: you know uh, a consortium of companies, uh, kind of. I think I think they're in the Bay Area, and, and we're and and our professor, Professor Wong, is actually uh, his VIP lab is a part of it the problem with big tech self-regulating or any company self self-regulating is this, right? And I remember talking to our team about this. All companies, whether they admit it or not, unless they're nonprofit, that's the exception, are in the business of making money. Period, right? Like not period, but that, that that's that's why they exist and they're answerable to investors, shareholders, whomever. So the question to me that's quite thorny is If the, if if the center of these companies is a very powerful capitalistic impulse, how can you expect them to self-regulate in a way that puts the citizenry first, right? Um, I'll give you a very practical example. YouTube's recommendation system, right? We've all gone down the YouTube rabbit hole. Um, I remember, you know, maybe six months ago, don't ask me why. I was really fascinated when cops arrest other cops, right? Because it, it happens so rarely, but now, now it's on camera. So, you know, you can, om- you can almost see the, you know, for example, a, a cop who was, you know, drinking slightly under the influence in the old days, they would just get away with it. Now with body cams and now they don't. So I remember, you know, watching a video and then it would recommend another video and slowly the content got more extreme, right? But it kept me there. Now you think about what is YouTube trying to maximize for when I'm looking at YouTube or what is very Google trying to maximize for? Now, if you're naive, you might think it's trying to surface content that you find the most appealing, right? No, what it's trying to do is is find content that will keep you on YouTube as long as they possibly can because they want to serve you advertising, right? So if that's what they're trying to maximize for, It's not bad that they're giving me content that's more extreme, but again, like who regulates that right now? I'm, I'm an adult. So if I choose to watch 45 minutes of cops beating other cops up, that's on me. My son is two and a half. We don't, he, we don't really, he doesn't even know what an iPad is yet. And we've been very disciplined about limiting screen time. He basically gets to watch a little bit when he gets up because he's crying. But again, like, like, you know, who's responsible for regulating, you know, extreme content? Um, you know, there, there's, there's a New York Times article about the election in Brazil and how, you know, YouTube really surfaced extreme, you know, call it alt-right content that galvanized young males and so forth, right? It's freedom of speech. You can't regulate it, but who's responsible for how that happens? So in my opinion, uh, governments definitely need to get involved in this in some concerted way. Um, because, you know, just like, it's just like saying, you know, well, we're going to leave it to oil companies to monitor their own emissions, right? Like they'd laugh you out of the room. Their, their job is to maximize their stock price. So they're going to do what they do without regulation. So it's a fine line. Um, but you know, I do think governments need to very, very much, uh, be involved in the regulation of AI. And you're seeing that now around the world, right? With GDPR in Europe, here in Canada, the Biden administration in the States and
0: so forth for sure yeah and um a lot of things have been established to that extent like uh i remember elon musk saying that he created the um future of life institute uh Mm. to sort of think about how uh we could avoid um in the words of stephen hawking the development of full artificial intelligence ending the human race Mm. so you know as we think about the continued evolution of ai of course, one of the more common sentiments uh, is this idea of you know AIs and the robotic takeover and artificial general intelligence. From your background in philosophy and theology and things of that understanding, do you think that, and of course um, engineering as a whole, do you see that as something that is possible in our lifetimes or do you feel like um, just building that level of complexity into a system requires more than just um, zeros and ones and Uh, There's just something about human nature that cannot be captured through an algorithm. And this is the,
1: you know, the the treasure at the end of the yellow brick road that fascinates me and I have no idea. Um, Because this is the thing, like it is such a wonderfully tantalizing question because the fact of the matter is we have no idea how this three pound packet of tissue that's be in between your cranium and my cranium and is enabling our conversation right now, how it gives rise to this rich, subjective interior consciousness that both of us have at the moment. We have no idea how that happens, none. Um, all we know is that there's about 100, 100 billion neural cells or neurons, they're connected to, through together through 100 trillion um, axons, There's electrochemical signals that propagate between them. And somehow in a way we have no idea how it gives rise to human consciousness. Right. And I experienced this in a real way with my own son, like, you know, he was born two and a half years ago. He came out as a blob who could basically do four things. He could cry, he could poop, he could sleep and he could eat. That's it. But slowly he evolved into this organism that showed intentionality, that showed humor that showed characteristics of consciousness, right? And now, of course, he's a menace to society. He runs around, he pulls things out, you know, he's a joy, but he's also, you know, holy terror, as my wife says. Um, so we have no idea how that happens. And for me, the the, the fascinating question, you alluded to this, is will we ever construct, um, you know, something that is, artificial, but has real consciousness the way me and you do. And the th- and the, the, the fascinating thing about that is that we don't even know exactly how to define consciousness, right? The best definition I ever heard was def- defined in the negative. It was by an Italian novelist who said, you know, it's that which leaves you every night when you fall into a dreamless state and comes back to you when you wake up. So we haven't defined it. We just said what it's not. Um, but can we, can we create something that exhibits this behavior right and there's two schools of thought there's there's my parents who say you are not just the sum of the atoms in your body you have something immaterial in you call it a soul that is unique to you that animates your being and we will never be able to replicate that in material terms so forget it it's not going to happen then there are people who say no you, you like your your brain functioning at the lowest level is our atom's Relating to one another, our quarks, our subatomic particles interacting in a very complex way, and they emerge and give rise to this consciousness that we now enjoy. And when we build something that is sufficiently complex, uh, consciousness will emerge from it, right? So I don't know what the answer is. Um, as to whether or not I'll see it in my lifetime, you know, I used to say no because you know i'm much older than than you certainly um but just given the progress think about where we were 5 years ago with artificial intelligence and where we are now and what we can do um we might not see it in my lifetime
0: but i imagine my my son might see it in his yeah i mean that's always a question that everyone wants to know there's plenty of movies uh showing us what that might be like and most of them don't really paint the best picture of it so It'll yeah. be uh, interesting to see, but that sort of leads us into two closing questions I like to ask, which is the first: What are you most excited about um, in terms of AI?
1: I think what excites me the most is um, the the innovation that AI will bring in fundamental areas of human research. Right, so. Um, you know then the machinery of deep learning being applied to to deepening our understanding of the cosmos, right? In the in the LHC, to helping us synthesize, you know, new drugs. I mean, Al, uh, DeepMind is a company I respect tremendously, and you know, you may have heard about AlphaFold, which pre- predicts protein folding, which is a hugely uh, complex problem, but one that is so key in the synthesizing of drugs and so forth. And you see, th- so to me, the level of foundational knowledge and breakthrough that that i think ai will result in uh, is terribly terribly exciting um you know just so many things that in five or ten years with enough subject matter experts and the right tools you know could we see cures for you know parkinson's disease and alzheimer's and so forth um that to me is terribly exciting and you know one that when Darwin, you know, as we continue to grow, I'd love
0: for us to, to, do, to do more of that work. Yeah, for sure. Um, on the flip side, is there anything that you really fear about AI, whether it be in the context of Darwin AI or personally that comes to mind? I think the biggest fear for me is
1: just the economic disparities that it can create, right? So, look, we already live in a very uh, economically pronounced world where, you know, I think what 0.1% of the people have 20% of the wealth. Um, And, you know, what we're seeing with artificial intelligence, I mean, if you think about what, you know, large big tech can do with it and build these competitive advantages, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Um, what does that mean for further economic polarization around the world? Um, you know, that scares me. Uh, you know, we already have a very disproportionate distribution of wealth in this, you know, country, world, what have you. And of course, I I know it's complex and I know that, you know, (laughs) equity and socialism, you know, is not, is not perfect and, um, have their flaws, and we don't know we don't necessarily know the most wise way to self-govern um but layering artificial intelligence on top of that you know if you look at what's happening in certain parts of china with mass state surveillance and so forth it's very scary right so it's it's the power that ai can give totalitarian regimes uh big companies that I think, you know, is very disconcerting and and certainly something I think about having having a son
0: who's two and a half. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. As you said, you're super busy. So um, I think that was a great discussion. Thank you so much for, uh, yeah, taking the time to, to speak and touch on all those different topics. It was super interesting for me and uh, definitely at the limits of my understanding as well. But great to have you on Sheldon
1: no problem thank you and you know people your listeners when this when this goes live they can add me to linkedin um you know you can also uh follow me on twitter or even email me at sheldon darwinai.com and uh you know always happy to to discuss you know artificial intelligence
0: and the like with with uh, interested young people so thank you the tech tidbits podcast is produced and edited by cindy wen with music from the unicorn heads if you wish to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, check us out on our socials. Our Instagram handle is tech tidbits Pod, and our LinkedIn page is The Tech Tidbits Podcast. We hope to see you back here for the next episode, and until then, take care and all the best.